today's scripture come from Galatians uh, chapter 1, 11 through 24. For, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I may preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I was away from Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Sicilia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only was hearing it, it said, he who used to persecute us and now preaching the face he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Welcome once again to New Creation Fellowship. And thank you for visiting us, for those of you who are our guest, uh, at the invitation of a friend or coworker. Uh, it's my joy and privilege now to lead us in our time of sitting under God's word. So without further ado, would you bow your heads and please pray with me. Father, we ask that you would speak to us. Lord, you know what we have gone through these past six days, and you know the recurring struggles, the difficulties, the pain the temptations that we are dealing with. And Father, you have called us to come out of all that, to gather here in this congregation so that we could be reminded of who we are, where we are going, and what we are to do in the meantime. Father, I pray that regardless of what we have brought with us through these doors, whatever anxieties, whatever fears, whatever frustrations, Lord Jesus, would you banish those things out of our hearts by your Holy Spirit so that we could be receptive to everything that you want us to receive on this your holy day. Father, we pray now that you will bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, for we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. How do you know, Christian, how do you know that your faith is the faith? How can you be so confident? How can you be so audacious? In light of all these various religions that are out there today, how can you stand there and say that your Christian faith is the one true faith? Have you ever been asked that question before, Christian? If you haven't, you will, especially in the city that you call home, New York City. A couple years ago, Pastor Tim Keller of Redeemer Presbyterian came out with his New York Times bestselling book entitled The Reason for God, and he opens on his first chapter quoting a man by the name of Jeff, a British national who resides and works in this very city that you call your own. And listen to what he says as it pertains to this issue that I just brought up. He writes this quote, or he quotes him saying, religious exclusivity is not just narrow, it's dangerous. Religion has led to untold strife, division, and conflict. It may be the greatest enemy of peace in the world. If Christians continue to insist that they have, quote, the truth, the world will never know peace, end quote. This is the mindset of so many who we reside in this city with. And I can't help but to wonder, Christian, if there's a part of you 
that agrees with what he's saying, or maybe a better way to put it, there's a part of you that has a hard time disagreeing with what he's saying, even though you don't want to agree with him. We're continuing our sermon series through the book of Galatians, and today the Apostle Paul is going to help us to understand how we can go about as followers of Jesus with assurance and confidence that the faith that we profess, in spite of what the culture will say, in spite of maybe a part of you may think, that our faith, yes, indeed, is the one true faith. And it is my hope that after today's message that you will begin to be able to come out of this place and go out into the world with more confidence and conviction to say, yes, indeed, my faith is indeed the one and only true faith. So with that in mind, two things I'd like to share with you from today's passage. Number one, we're going to talk about the reasons Christianity is not the one true faith. And then we're going to end it with the reasons Christianity is the one true faith. The reasons why it's not the one true faith and the reasons why it is the one true faith. Got it? Let's jump right in with the first. The reasons Christianity is not the true faith. Now, just to give a little background of our passage, the Apostle Paul is defending himself against a bunch of false teachers who are trying to take a hostile takeover of all the various churches that he himself planted in the city of Galatia. And the way that they're going about this is by claiming that Paul's faith is not the one true faith. And as we consider how Paul goes about defending himself, we come to discover that it's very applicable in our attempts to defend ourselves against our critics who would say the same about our faith. And so let's consider how Paul goes about defending his own faith and the claim that it's the one true and only one. And you'll come to discover in a shocking way that he first wants to begin by telling us what the reasons are not. In other words, Paul wants to tell us reasons that he does not depend on or cling to to give him any sense of security that his faith is the one true faith. And therefore, that's his way of telling you that you shouldn't rely on these very same reasons as well. And he tells us there's two of them. The first is, what are they? I'm lost. Oh, (laughs) the first reason is the intellect of man. And the second is the traditions of man. The intellect of man and the traditions of man. He says, these are not the reasons that you should go to and depend on so that you could have confidence that your faith is the one true faith. So let's consider the first, which is the traditions, excuse me, the intellect of man. Read again with me our passage. Can we have it up here? Verse 11 to 12, where Paul writes this. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now notice what Paul says about his faith, or as he calls it, his gospel. How does he describe it? What does he refer to it as? He says, it is not what? Man's gospel. Man's gospel. What in the world does that even mean? What is he talking about when he says that his faith is not man's gospel well i think it's pretty obvious he's simply saying that it's not man-made that means the origin of his faith does not come from mankind and to further clarify consider these words from new testament scholar donald guthrie as he comments on this very first when he writes this quote paul's first assertion about his gospel i.e his faith is a negative one it is not of human origin it has not been forged out of the human intellect it is not a philosophical system or religious faith created by some religious genius and quote in other words paul's faith aka his gospel 
is not the creative genius of any human intellect. It is not the creative product of any human reasoning. And this is something that you need to understand, Christian, because one of the most pervasive means in which Christians go about defending their faith is by arguing that it's reasonable, that Christianity is intellectual, and it's very, very reasonable. In fact, some Christians will go so far as to say that their faith is as reasonable as science, it's as, as intellectual as philosophy. Now, please don't misunderstand what I am saying. As I say all this, I am not implying that our faith is not an intellectual faith or that it's not a reasonable faith, for surely it is. But consider the main question of today's message. How can I be confident that my faith is really the one and only true faith? If your answer to that question is simply because it makes sense to me or because my reason can convince me that it's the truth, then what you're really saying, whether you recognize it or not, is that the only reason why you believe Christianity is true is because you agree that it's true. That is, your reasoning says it's true. In other words, what you're saying, I will only accept Christianity to be the truth if it first submits to my intellectual criteria, if, it, if it's agreeable to my reasoning. Now, if you can't figure out why that's a problem, why that's not good, consider these words from theologian Herman Bavinck as he writes this, quote, we cannot credit a knowledge of God to ourselves, to our own discovery, investigation, or reflection. If it were not given to us by any act of free and unobliged favor, there would be no possibility that we could ever achieve it by an exertion of our own efforts. When it comes to the knowledge of created things, the situation is somewhat different. Man stands above nature. He can take the measure of natural phenomena, study them, and to a certain extent, he can artistically cause things to come into being. He can, so to speak, force nature to disclose herself and to discover her secrets. However, God is the absolutely independent one, the perfectly sovereign one. He is dependent upon us in no single respect, but we, both as we are naturally and as we are rationally and morally, are absolutely dependent upon him. Hence, we have no control and no power over him at all we have no way to make him the object of our study and reflection except he lets himself be found we cannot seek him except he give himself we cannot accept him what is he saying he's saying that you can never go up to god and think i got you figured out man has anyone ever insulted you that way man i know you like oh you don't know me you don't know me right no i know you what are they saying you are beneath them, right? In whatever category they'll say, but they say, I got you. I can read you like a book. You can never say that to God. And for you to argue, yes, my Christianity makes sense because my rationality can domesticate it and conquer it to where, by implication, I can read God. There's something seriously, seriously wrong, okay? Because if it were true, that means the only thing that you would ever need to do to be able to convert somebody is to simply educate them. And yet I have encountered so many brilliant Christians debating so many brilliant atheists. And yet even when that Christian pones that atheist, never have I ever witnessed that atheist come to say, oh, wow, you've defeated me. I'm going to give my life to Jesus. Never. I've never witnessed it. In fact, in a moment of severe, sobering honesty, I once 
came across an atheist, a man by the name of Matt Dillahunty, basically revealing his cards about how he feels about Christianity as he was ranting about his parents trying to convert him back to the Christianity that they raised him up in. Listen to what he says about all of this. He says, quote, Even if Jesus is real, your Jesus is a expletive. And I want nothing to do with him. I'll no longer be an atheist. I'll acknowledge that he is real. But I will not worship or revere any God who can turn my parents into babbling buffoons, end quote. That's my point. My point is this. Christianity is intellectually true. But it is not true because human intellect says it's true. Let me say that again. Christianity is intellectually true, but it is not true because our intellect, human intellect, says so. Because the intellect says, yes, I give you this status of truth. I confer this recognition, this authority that you are the truth, God. Now, With that out of the way, Paul moves on to the second reason he says we should not depend on to give us any confidence or security that our faith is the one true faith, and that is the tradition of man. Read again what he says, starting in verse 13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. If you have a pen or a highlighter, you might want to underline that last statement in 14, the traditions of my fathers. Bible scholars tell us that's referring to the oral traditions of the Jewish law, the oral law. And for those of you who are unfamiliar, what is that? It's basically a comprehensive, very detailed list of all the traditions of Judaism that span over thousands of generations, right? amongst many different kinds of Jews, across many different kinds of cultures and places, covering multiple generations. And because that is the background, the oral law has been very, very authoritative in the days of Paul, and it still happens to be very authoritative today amongst devout Jews, because it carries this characteristic of universal recognition. If something is relevant, not only in one generation, but multiple generation amongst people who come from different cultures, different backgrounds, different perspectives, and yet they all agree this is authoritative, giving the sense of universal recognition as the truth, that carries the weight of saying it's because of this universal recognition that this is the truth. And that's exactly what Paul is getting at. He's saying the second reason that you should not depend on for why you are so confident your faith is the one true faith is because it has universal recognition as the truth. As a pastor, I have met many Christians in my life who will say, I know Christianity is true because it's universally recognized as the truth. And they'll back up this assertion by citing things like the recent Pew Research polls that state that right now and has been since its beginning, Christianity It's the most popular religion in the world today, coming in at an impressive 2.8 billion people professing to be Christians. That is the largest faith in all the world. And people like this will say, see, it's the most popular religion today. Look at how impressive that number is. Clearly, universal recognition across the globe in different cultures, different. See, that is evidence that the faith is so true. Isn't that impressive? Well, I don't know. Because do you know how much 2.8 million comes, billion comes out to in terms of the world population? 33% of 
Only 33% of the people on this globe think that Christianity is true. Doesn't seem very impressive to me. Let me ask you students, if you got a final exam grade of 33%, would you be happy with that? Do you think you're going to fail? Look what I got, 33% on my final, you professionals. Let's say you find out through your coworkers that you're only getting paid 33% of what they're getting paid. Are you going to be like, woohoo, 33%? No. You know what 33% tells me? It tells me that 67% of this world does not recognize our faith as the one true faith. That's a lot of people, right? So the Christian who would argue this way is really standing on shaky ground. Now, I know some of you are hearing this new revelation. You're really getting concerned. Maybe you think, oh, my gosh, Pastor, don't you realize you're kind of creating this crisis of faith? Does this mean that our faith maybe isn't relevant? No. And you shouldn't go through a crisis of faith for two reasons. First reason, just because something is popular doesn't make it true, right? Or maybe I could put it this way. Just because something is true doesn't mean everyone is going to recognize it as the truth. This is something I don't need to convince you. In this social media age, with this era of fake news, we all know by now that just because something goes viral doesn't mean it's genuine, doesn't mean it's great, or that it's good because it's good in and of itself, or it's good to know. There are a lot of things out there that go viral that shouldn't be going viral at all. Because it's not genuine, it's not great, it's not good, and therefore it's not the truth. The second reason why we shouldn't be bothered by this is because of the fact Christianity never promised, the scriptures never said, that it would be universally recognized as the truth. In fact, the Bible would say just the opposite. Do you know there's actually a heretical belief that is called universalism? You know what universalism teaches? It teaches that everyone is going to go to heaven. No one is going to go to hell, including Satan and his demons. Right? Everyone gets saved. That's heresy. That's not biblical. That is not what the Bible teaches. Because the problem of that kind of heresy, that kind of belief, is that it fails to recognize that not everyone is interested in the truth. See, that's the faulty assumption of this second reason that Paul is wanting us to be aware of. Okay? Not everyone really wants to be in the light. Not everyone really cares about what's true. People sometimes want to believe a lie. They don't care if it's true or not. They're more concerned about other categories. Like, does this make me feel good? Does this make me look good? Does this give me power? Does this give me prestige? Consider these words from the Apostle John in his third chapter, where starting in verse 18, we read, There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, Jesus. But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people love the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they're doing what God wants. Just because something is true doesn't mean people are going to automatically say, yes, I agree. So there you have it. Two reasons, Paul tells us, you should not lean on, depend on, 
and give footing on why you're so confident to why your faith, your Christian faith, is indeed the one true faith. Now Paul is ready to move on to the reasons you should cling to. And this leads me to my next and final point. The reasons Christianity is the one true faith. Now, embedded in these 11 verses that we're studying, from verses 13 to 25, Paul identifies two reasons as to why he is confident that his faith is indeed the one true faith, and therefore why you should rely on these reasons as well. And as I'll show you in just a moment, these two reasons are dependent on one another, where the first reason he's about to tell us lays the foundation for the second. So let's go through it so you'll see what I mean. First, Paul is confident in his faith because it's uniquely personal. Read again what he says in verse 15. But when he who set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. Okay, pause right there. Your attention. One of my favorite songs in the 1990s when I first became a Christian was Michael W. Smith's Place in This World. You guys know that song? Looking for, no, okay, you know what that song is, right? I love that song. And one of the reasons why I love it is because it personally resonated with me, particularly these lines, these lyrics in the song. He goes, if there are a million down on their knees, among the many, can you still hear me? Hear me asking, where do I belong? Is there a vision that I can call my own? Now, what is he asking there in this part of the song? He's asking something that I've countlessly asked many times throughout my Christian life, and I'm willing to bet something that you have asked as well, and that is, God, am I just a number to you? Do you really see me? Do you really know me? And I don't mean just know me as just one of your children. Do you know me as well as if I was your only child? Do you know me with that kind of uniqueness, that kind of personableness, that kind of individuality? Do you really know me? Given the popularity of this song, it was number six on the Billboard Hot 100. Not the Billboard Christian 100, but in the mainstream one. Tells me that a lot of people, Christian and non, have struggled with this question. And you know what? That's okay. Because so did Paul. How do I know? Read again what he says in verse 15. He who had set me apart before I was born. A more smoother translation. The NLT puts it this way. Even before I was born, God chose me and called me by his marvelous grace. Now, if you're familiar with the story of Paul, this statement should sound very odd to you. Because according to the book of Acts, Paul was converted way after he was born. He was converted as an adult. Okay? He wasn't converted as a little baby. He was converted as adult. So the question becomes, why does Paul say that God chose him and called him to receive his mercy and grace before he was born, when historically he experienced this mercy and grace when he was a grown man. Here's why. Paul, after becoming a Christian, realized something about God. He experienced something with God that he never experienced prior, and that is he experienced God's unique and personal love for him as if he was God's only child. That's what he is saying here, right? And if you read the Bible, you'll come to discover he's not the only one who's had this kind of experience. You see written throughout the scriptures, characters or even authors who are writing the Bible themselves saying the very same thing. Just for the sake of time, I will just cite two. 
passages. First, Jeremiah 1.5, I, God, knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. Before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you as my prophet to the nations. Psalm 139, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together, together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O oh God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand a distinct characteristic of christianity is that it's a very unique personalized faith to where god knows you way before you even start to ponder whether or not he even knows you at all i love how saint augustine puts it in his marvelous book the confessions when he writes this oh thou good omnipotent who so cares for every one of us as if thou cared for him only and so for all, as if they were but one. Beautiful. Now, with that in mind, let's now look again at what Paul says in verse 13 and 14. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father's. What is Paul describing here? Many people would say, well, he's describing how he used to be and how he used to live his life before he was a Christian. Yes, but not just only. Paul is actually telling us what happens to a person when they have no confidence, no assurance that God truly knows them personally and loves them uniquely. Okay? It causes you to be driven to be willing to do anything to anyone so you can stand out. For Paul, it meant advancing in Judaism beyond his age, better than his peers, to the point that he was willing to violently persecute the church. For others, it could be being so ambitious for their job that they're willing to throw people under the bus and play backstabbing politics. Or maybe for others, it could be they're so obsessed with getting as many likes as possible on their social media that they're willing to post anything about anyone, no matter how despicable it might be, like we tend to see in some of our political Leaders, listen, when you do not realize or maybe if you do not believe that God knows you personally, that he loves you uniquely, that his love for you is a holy love, it's a love like no other, it's a set apart love, you will do anything just so you can stand out. When you have no assurance that you are personally known and uniquely favored by God, you'll be so driven to compete and chase after that sense of unique favor to the point that you're willing to do anything to anyone to get it. But conversely, if you are confident that God truly sees you this way, that he uniquely favors you, that he particularly loves you, you can be confident your faith is true. Right? Because it gives birth to the second reason Paul identifies as the thing that we should lean on to give us assurance that our faith is true. And that is we can explain a gracious person. We can explain a gracious person. Listen again to what Paul did after he understood he was uniquely loved by God himself. What do he say? Second half of verse 16. That I might preach him among the Gentiles. Before Paul was a Christian, he was a devout Jew. 
How did devout Jews feel about Gentiles, non-Jews? They hated them. Compassion, like with passion, not compassion. They hated them with passion. In Ephesians 2, Paul tells us this hostility by referring to it as the dividing wall of hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile. And Paul was one of them. Paul hated Gentiles. One of the reasons why he persecuted Christians was because many of them were Gentiles. And yet, once the transformation of his faith occurred, where he was confident that God loved him and set him apart, what did he want to do? He wanted to go out to the Gentiles and do what? Give the greatest gift in far, as far as his mind was concerned was he wanted to give the gospel. He wanted to preach the gospel to them. Paul makes it clear. When you firmly believe that God has set you apart with a unique particular love, that changes you to become a gracious person. Now, before I go any further, I will confess that Christianity is not the only one who has this to their credit. There are countless of faiths out there that have a good track record of changing people in a positive way that includes them being gracious as well. But Christianity is the only faith that explains how and why a person is gracious. No other faith, I double dare you to look for, no other faith can give an explanation of how and why people should be gracious the way the Christian faith can. And to explain what I'm going with this, let's talk about what it means to be gracious. What does it mean that a person is a gracious person? Well, it might be helpful to first consider what a gracious person is is not an ungracious person because we tend to see that more often in our culture today, right? What is an ungracious person? Consider these words from Professor Daniel Taylor as he writes this, quote, the opposite of stories of grace are those of hate, revenge, and unrelieved victimhood. Individuals and communities who define themselves primarily in terms of wrong done to them are unlikely sources of grace to others, especially if the solution to those wrongs is seen as getting even with one's enemies, end quote. According to Dr. Taylor, A person who is ungracious is a person who always keeps a record of wrong and they always see other people as those who owe them something and they only see themselves as someone who is only owed by others. That is an ungracious person. In other words, there are people who always feel this sense of entitlement, right? For reparations, rewards, recognition, and respect. But according to Paul, a gracious person is none of those things. When a person is truly transformed to where they are truly gracious, they don't need reparations, they don't need rewards, and they certainly don't need recognition or respect. Read again the second half of 16 all the way down to 20. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, the apostle Peter. And remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. What is Paul saying? He's saying the moment he became a Christian, he stopped chasing after recognition. He stopped chasing after respect. He didn't go up to Jerusalem to get any sort of validation from those who are part of the establishment. He didn't go to visit Peter, James, or John. He visited Peter later, or as he's referred to by his Hebrew name, Cephas, three years after his conversion. And even with that, he only spent with him less than two weeks. Now think about it. When you're about to start a new business venture, when you're about to release a new product, what is the first thing that you're supposed to do? Marketing 101. 
you get endorsements, right? You get validations from people who are credible in the business so that when you launch, right, you're ready to go. People are willing to buy your products. People are willing to give a listening ear. Paul did none of that as he was starting his new ministry. He doesn't do any of that. Why? Because he's been radically changed by the Christian faith. And it's not so much that he didn't care about what others thought of him. It was more that he didn't care what he thought of himself. Because he no longer had this mindset that he was owed or entitled to anything. Do you know what the fundamental mindset is of a person who feels entitled? The mindset that they have is, I have been deprived of something I deserve. Therefore, you need to give, give, give. Paul doesn't go to Jerusalem and says, Peter, give me your recognition. John, give me your approval. James, give me your respect. Apostles, recognize me as a valid apostle, just like you guys. What does he do instead? Verse 21 to 22. He went where no one knew him. Not so that he can be given anything, but so that he could give, 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 which is the gospel, right? That was all he cared about. That was only what he was concerned with. Now we ask, how could Paul do this? How is he able to account for this kind of change? The answer is the gospel. The gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that says the eternal son of God, who is truly the only begotten child of God, the father, this only true child of God came into this world as Jesus Christ so that he could suffer and die on the cross for your sins, for my sins. And why did Jesus go through this? So that you who by virtue of your sins, who should be treated like an enemy of God would instead be treated the way Jesus was treated for all eternity past as the one and only true child of God. When Jesus came into the world, he wasn't treated like, you know, one out of a quadrillion children where he was potentially neglected and forgotten. He was treated worse. He was treated as an enemy of God. That should have been your consequence. But Jesus came in so that he could take our place so that the unique personal love that the Father relinquishes to him becomes each and every one of yours individually. Do you see that? This is what you receive when you confess your sins before God. This is what happens when you repent and turn away and you make Christ the Lord and Savior of your life. And when you understand that, now you have a framework in understanding why and how a person is gracious. Christian, why are you such a gracious person? Because my God, Jesus, is by nature gracious because he gave me something I can never be owed or entitled. He gave me himself. Therefore, I want to be gracious. Christian, how can you be gracious? Because God, who is entitled to my respect because of his power, because God, who was entitled of my recognition as my creator, because God, who was owed the reward of my obedience as my loving king, and because God, who was owed reparations for my sins that re- should have been nothing less than my death and condemnation, he let it go. 
he canceled the debt. And it's because of that. That's how. Because every time I think of that, that quiets any sense of entitlement, that squashes any sense of wanting to seek out favor through my efforts to the point where I'm willing to do anything to anyone. No, because I look to the someone who did anything that was necessary so that he could have me. Not who's just anyone to him, but someone whom he loves with personal, individualized, unique love. That's the gospel. That's why and how a person is gracious. And do you know what, guys? We need an adequate explanation right now for why a person should be gracious. Because I don't think any of us need your, in here need to be convinced that we could use some graciousness in this world today. And yet, we don't see it. Even though it's obvious that people should be gracious, we don't see it. Why do you think certain political leaders can get away with things that are obviously wrong even though no one does anything about it or can do anything. You know why? Because no one can explain why or how people should be gracious. We can no longer assume that it's obvious to everyone, especially now as ungracious type takes on positions of power, build coalitions, bringing out more like-minded people like them that would end up cause more difficulties, pain, and suffering for those around us. We now more than ever need a justifying reason that can be articulated in such a way that is so missing in the public sphere right now. Why should we need gracious people? How can we have gracious people? People in the past who just said, because it's obvious, doesn't work anymore. Do you know who the world is tacitly looking to? They're looking to us and the gospel that we are called to live out and the gospel we're called to share. How are you doing in that, Christian? My hope and prayer is that all of us in here can grow confident in our faith as the one true faith by truly having the conviction of the two reasons Paul gives. Because I promise you, if you make these reasons your conviction, as Paul calls us to have, not only will you enjoy your faith and the fruits that come out of it, but ironically, people like Jeff, who I quoted at the beginning of the message, who believe that if we hold on to this belief, harms the world in actuality, blesses the world and people like him. So here's the choice. How do you know, Christian, that your faith is the one and only true faith? Let's pray. Father, help us to not be so timid, to not be so uncertain, to not be so dubious against ourselves and especially not against you and the glorious truth that you have given to us through the faith that we all profess father we live in a time and age where people need christianity even though they want nothing to do with it father we see the collateral damage that it's being inflicted in our lives we see it in places like hong kong we see it in places in north korea we see it in the middle east we see it in our own in our own city. God, would you hear us now and stir in us deep, resounding conviction that our faith is indeed the one true faith, not so that we can be domineering, not so that we could be vicious and cruel, 
but so that we could live out the calling that you've given us to live out, which is to be servants of the world, seeking to bless it, because we point to the one who truly is the real blessing to all of creation, Jesus Christ. For we pray all these things in his holy name. Amen.